Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. This is episode 23, recorded Thursday, January 24th. 2019. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Betrayal Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, our second of 2019, we are joined by Amtul Siddiqui, Senior Manager Advancement at Vivo, Ray Marshall, CEO of MCR West Limited, and Tom Barakoff, CEO of TPB Strategic Council. Our topic Fundraising in Faith or Faith in Fundraising. There are over 86,000 charities in Canada. 40% of these organizations are faith-based. From Islamic cultural organizations to Christian hospitals and high schools. From Jewish community centers to Buddhist outreach programs. Faith-founded and faith-grounded organizations are an important part of our sector. In today's podcast, we will talk about what is universal about fundraising and what if anything, are the differences when raising money for faith-based organizations. Join us as we hear from three fantastic fundraisers, all of whom have experience raising funds with communities of faith. All this and more on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. We have three amazing Canadian nonprofit leaders with us today, all experienced fundraisers. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from Calgary, we have Amtul Siddiqui. This is Amtul's first visit to the podcast. Amtul and I are working together on a project at Vivo, one of Calgary's most innovative health and recreation facilities. Welcome to the podcast, Amtul. Thanks, Vincent. Thank you for having me. Amtul, when we first met, you were a board member at Vivo. Now, you're a staff member in charge of fundraising for Vivo. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what that transition has been like and, and how, how, how you as a staff member now interact with the board of directors. <laughs> sure. So, <laughs> so I've been in fundraising for 15 years. Most of that time was spent with the Red Cross, which was fantastic. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to join the board at Vivo, and what an eye-opening experience. It's an amazing facility. The work that we're doing here is absolutely phenomenal. And so um, after being on the board for a couple of years, the opportunity came up to join the staff person. And I had not thought about leaving Red Cross at that point, but just the overall opportunity and the growth and everything with it was fantastic. And so I joined uh, about a year and a half ago. And, you know, it's been interesting. I think for me and for the team here, I can see it from both sides. I bring that level from being a formal board member when you're looking at that, you know, um, high-level, you know, view of things, but then as a staff person, I can bring it down to that operational piece as well. So I think for um, for me, it's been fantastic to see it from the, the duplicate side, and hopefully um, the board members see that as well. I think also as being a former board member, you have a little bit more of street cred with the board as well, saying, you know what, I understand where you guys are coming from, and here's where uh, the organization is coming from as well. So That's super awesome. successful so far. Yeah. I I hadn't actually thought about um, uh, the benefit to the staff. I had thought about the benefit to the board. That's great. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Thanks for joining us, Amtul. 
Thank you. Joining us from Edmonton, we have Ray Marshall. Like Amtool, this is Ray's first visit to the podcast. Ray and I have known each other for as long as I've been a professional fundraiser, and he has been a leading fundraiser based out of Edmonton for even longer, well, maybe based out of many other places, too. Welcome to Brain Trust Philosophy, Ray. Thanks for my visit, and I'm honored to be among this august <laughs> Thanks, Ray. Ray, you recently joined me as one of our instructors for the CFRE Refresher Course. It was formerly called the CFRE Review Course. I vividly remember watching you facilitate the group. Uh, for those of you that don't know, CFRE stands for the Certified Fundraising Executive, which is our credential in fundraising. And as I mentioned, I, I, it was a truly wonderful to be part of, to watch you facilitate this group. You're a very gifted teacher and presenter, and we felt lucky to be to be in that time with you. And now we're going to hear more about, we're going to hear more about your thoughts and experience with faith-based fundraising later in the podcast, but for now, I'm wondering if you might share with us your approach to, to teaching and teaching fundraisers and sharing, sharing your knowledge. What's your philosophy? What's your approach? That's an excellent question. First is, as many fundraisers, I consider myself relational, value relations, support relations in every possible way I can where it, it takes a little different turn when it comes to my teaching, because I'm there to, to serve, not just to have a relationship with, because it's hard to do that with 25 or 50 or 200 people, wherever the thing is. But here's, here's my secret, and this sound, may sound a little odd. Um, I've been teaching for many years in post-secondary and within state uh, organizations, but you know what happens? <clears throat> I became a better teacher when I had a student come up to me one day, a mature student, and said, you know something? You teach from your strengths, but we would relate better if you would teach from your weaknesses and challenges. Well, that just threw me on the ground. Um, And I changed my whole approach to teaching from that point, where I now talk more about some of the the hard things, whatever the subject happens to be, some of the challenges. All the glory. It's sometimes much more about journey, and sometimes the journey is bare uh, feet and rocky road, as they say. So that's, uh, and I appreciate that affirmation. For my teacher, well, I love it. Thanks, Ray. You never know what's going to happen when you ask a question like that. Wow, what a what a mm. super learning. Thank you for that. Um, last but not least, joining us from uh, White Rock. Uh, in Vancouver area, we have Tom Berkoff. This is not Tom's first visit to our podcast. Tom first joined us uh, uh, early in the podcast. You were on episode three, where we talked about the future of fundraising and philanthropy, Tom. You were with uh, Sherilyn Hale and Andrew McManus and Jane Potenche. You were awesome then. Uh, you're going to be awesome today. Welcome back, Tom. Oh, thank you so much. It's a delight to be part of this uh, topic today, to be with this wonderful group. And again, I just want to throw my hands up towards uh, the trail and for continuing to uh, offer the brain trust to our sector. I think you're you're doing something that's really important. You're providing us with a, a hands-on, practical voice of uh, the people in the field, and it's, it's valuable. So thank you. Thanks, Tom. Tom, you spent most of your career living and working in the, the Edmonton area, I believe. I, I know you're still – I know you've also worked in southern Alberta, and um, and I know you're still working – in Western Canada, and I heard that you're in Toronto, and even have a, uh, a client uh, in Romania, which is awesome. Uh, but you also recently moved to to White Rock, uh, you know, uh, in, in the Vancouver area. What prompted the move? Has it been a lifelong 
goal to move the, to the coast, and perhaps most importantly, don't you miss the snow? Oh, oh yes, I, I definitely miss the snow. Uh, no question, I am a prairie boy, born and raised in Lethbridge and uh, educated there. Spent much of my career in, in Alberta, um, but I have to say moving to White Rock has uh, some definite advantages. Uh, we have two adult daughters here who we're enjoying to reconnect and spend some more time with, and I'm very fortunate to have a number of clients in the Lower Mainland, and uh, just um, it's a, a delightful transition while still in career and looking forward to what the coming years have in store. Awesome. And in the pre-show, I heard uh, from someone that apparently living in the Lower Mainland is good for your skin. Uh, so that's great. Uh, uh, I'm glad to hear that you'll be looking um, so much younger than your your 40 years. Um, so that's great. <laughs> you, you, you're very kind. Yeah, I know. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Um, all right. Let, 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 let's really get started. Thank you all for joining us on this, our 2023rd podcast. Um, uh, the, the, our topic today is uh, fundraising in faith or faith in fundraising. The nonprofit sector is a complex sector with a diversity of organizations and a variety of causes. From organizations with thousands of employees to grassroots causes with no paid staff. From health to education to culture to the environment to human services and beyond. It's a huge sector. And within the sector, there are communities that thread and underpin all of these organizations and causes. Many of these communities are secular in nature. Many are founded in faith. From Islamic cultural organizations to Christian hospitals and high schools, from Jewish community centers to Buddhist outreach programs, faith-founded and faith-grounded organizations are an important part of our sector. While the tenets and principles of fundraising are universal, there are nuances and differences to be mindful of in fundraising for secular versus faith-based organizations. Today, I'm thrilled that we have three amazing, thoughtful, and talented fundraisers with us to discuss just what is the same and what is different when you're fundraising in faith. Tom, let's start with you. You and I have talked about doing this topic for a while, and arguably uh, you were the, the, the spark that got this going, and here we are. Maybe you can start us off by sharing some of your observations based on your long experience fundraising with faith-based organizations. And I know that you do fundraising um, inside and outside of faith-based organizations, but today's topic is kind of centered in there. So, Scott, we'll start there. Tom? Uh, thank you. so Thank you so much. I'm uh, I'm delighted again that we're carrying this topic. Um, let let me just start at the very highest level. You know, when we think about fundraising and philanthropy, um, it comes down to that core definition of love of humanity. When we think about faith, regardless of our our orientation towards faith, it's also about relationships and people and our caring for people. So I, I think fundamentally there is a a huge common denominator. In fact, some would say one is perhaps the uh, the point of origin for the other, and I don't think we need to debate that, but just to say that we start from a, a common place. I, I think another element of the importance or commonality between um, whether it's secular or faith-based fundraising is the fact that we are public-facing and we're here to serve. We want to accomplish great things for our communities, for our society, for whoever our stakeholders are, beneficiaries are. And so, again, a place of commonality. Where, where we begin perhaps to take a, a bit of a, a different orientation, I think, at times, is uh, is the why we do what we do. And in some cases, uh, I think that faith-based organizations have been perhaps critically, cruelly, and inappropriately sometimes uh, accused of using philanthropy as a way to, if you will, proselytize or try to reach people for their faith. And 
I doubt that that's true by and large part. However, sometimes it marginalizes the impact of what faith-based organizations can do. So, so for me, um, we have a, a an incredible sector, a charitable sector in Canada. 86,000, 87,000 charities. Almost 40% of those have a faith basis. Almost half of the keeping that happens in Canada happens through faith-based organizations. A huge, a huge wave of volunteerism happens through faith-based organizations. And I say to you, what we have an opportunity is to, to marshal those organizations to even greater heights, to even greater service, and for them to become even more entrenched in terms of what our society needs today, rather than to think of them as you know, whether it's uh, places of worship and they work exclusively inwardly towards their membership, I, I'd say to you that, in fact, the, the primary motivation behind them is to serve communities. So we have we have great opportunity at our hands. Forty percent of that of our charities have, have a, a basis in faith. That's that's tremendous. And I think that also speaks to the importance of this topic today. Amtol, did you want to weigh in? You know, yeah, what are your, I think your, I would. Sure. Well, I would think I would start with the fact that, um, you know, charity begins at home. And I think that's what most of us was, was taught um, when we were young. And most of our first exposure was probably through a faith-based organization. And for me, it was going to the mosque and learning um, about charity. And it being one of the primary tenets of Islam was that you had to give zakat, which is basically translated into giving charity, and watching my parents do that. So that was, I would say, my first exposure to that. Um, charitable nonprofit world. It's, I think it's a great topic that hasn't been fully discussed, and I would say that it hasn't been fully looked at, especially um, in the world of Islamic fundraising or just even from Muslims. And it, most faiths, like I said, have the tenet, but what does that mean? And so really looking at um, where people are in terms of their faith-based giving, is it still the same as when my parents gave money and has that changed over time as um, as younger millennials are coming on board too? And is there that same attachment to that faith-based giving as there was before? Big questions. Those are big questions. Thanks, Antul. And I, I want to circle back um, with some of the uh, the materials that we had sent out in advance uh, that that sort of spoke about some of the tenets of faith-based giving. So I want to come back to that in a minute. But Ray. You want to have an opportunity to, to, to weigh in on what we talked about? Indeed. The audience needs to know that the frame that I come with is a little bit different. I grew up in a uh, Muslim family uh, that uh, then uh, was a, uh, an intermarry to a, I would say, an agnostic uh, family as well. So I have a strange mix. But through all that, in the uh, 25 years later, um, I came to a uh, community Christian faith, but my lens is much more of a Judeo-Christian uh, lens instead of just just the Christian. So that that might be a little strange, but if you hear me say things or sort of go into a Jewish chant, you'll understand why. Um, <laughs> let, let me let me start this. Um, Henry Nouwen um, was a uh, he was a philosopher. He was a priest. Um, he, he was an amazing man to look into spirituality. Uh, some of his sermons are just, they're well, they're famous. But he was asked to do a sermon, a short sermon, on fundraising, which was a little bit different for a Catholic priest who uh, had this, this deepness of faith. And he said a couple things that I'd just like to, to share with the, uh, 
he said in this sermon, The Spirituality of Fundraising is what it's entitled. But although it's meant specifically for those who raise money for churches, many of the ideas that uh, that he espouses have a, have a broader appeal. So the, the real wisdom of Malin is to help us to think theologically about money. Now, isn't that strange? Isn't that a strange phrase? To think theologically about money and our relationship to it. Um, there's a mistranslation that often people use, which is uh, that money is the root of all evil. Well, actually, the, the scriptures don't say that. The scriptures, the uh, Judeo-Christian scriptures, talk about the love of money <coughs> is the root of all evil. So if we start there, um, we, we then can do a bit of a springboard to back to, to our friend, Mr. He said, as a form of ministry, fundraising is as spiritual as giving a sermon, entering a time of prayer, visiting the sick, or feeding the hungry. Well, that takes a very different, and a little bit of a uh, take on what uh, Tom had said at first, that this is all about faith, it's all about community, it's all about giving. So now I'm really is really he's making a, a bold statement, a bold claim. He's saying giving of our worldly resources to the Christian community and well beyond it to every community to which we belong is then an act of service to God. And, and taking it one step further, it's actually a reflection of God. So it's not just done from obligation, it's not just done from the teachings that we learn Parents and we saw the, the generosity of, of many folks. It's a service of God, and it's a reflection of God. Thank you, Ray. I, um, I'm going to come back to that comment about money in just a second, and thank you, uh, Tom and Antil, for, for weighing in. Tom, I, I really like that you started off with the commonalities. Um, really appreciate that, um, that let's start with the, uh, the things that are actually common to secular and faith-based, and I really love that. And I do think we're going to have to pull that thread out about the next generation, so absolutely your comment about millennials is bang on. Um, but I'm going to use the springboard of what Ray said to maybe get us into the, uh, the, the nitty-gritty of this a bit, if we could. Um, uh, you know, I've worked with a number of faith-based organizations, and... Um, uh, had some really good success. Uh, sometimes within uh, that experience, though, I've had a discomfort around money that is some, I suspect I would have loved to have known that this was actually the love of money as opposed to money is um, the root of all evil. I think um, let's talk a little bit about uh, just the general approach in faith-based fundraising around things like competition with the church itself or the inherent frugality of some faith-based organizations or humbleness or money and talking about it. Uh, so I'm wondering if we could dig into that. I don't know who wants to start, but I'm open. Who wants to, who wants to respond to what I've just said? Well, let me start with, uh, and it's an excellent supposition. The, uh, there are many scriptures that have been Hindu, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Christian, um, that talk about gifts that we are given, not just skills, not just talents, but real gifts. And one of them is, is well um, outlined within uh, the Christian scriptures, which talks about giving to be done, A, with 
joy, but he is an actual gift. There are people who have an absolute love and joy of giving. That's a place that says, while obligation is also important, and you'll find that in scriptures uh, of all types, in holy uh, writings of all types, or many different. But I love the idea of if you're giving, it should be done with joy. Obligation to know that you must support others who are, are in uh, difficult circumstances. But if you don't do your giving with joy, you're not doing that reflection of God that I spoke about. Great observation. Tom or Amtul, do you want to weigh in on some of the things I said or pull a thread from that or take us in a new direction? Well, I think there's always been that piece about, you know, when you give, you're giving from that place of joy and you're giving from that place of you want to do well for others. And so there is that humbleness. But sometimes there's also that mix-up I found with folks that um, are giving in terms of from their faith. There's also that piece of recognition and how does that work mm-hmm. together. And they want that recognition piece. And so even though they're humbly giving, at the same time, there are some who say, okay, well, what am I getting out of it beyond the tax receipt? And mm-hmm. part of that, I think, is sometimes for themselves a little bit of an ego. And I think sometimes it's also that piece of um, I'm giving and I want people to know that someone of a different faith gave this. And so I want that out there in the open, too, to show the diversity of the gifts coming in. So uh-huh. I find that, that's a, you know, I found that conflict interesting, especially as I was a child. My dad gave charity all the time. It was very common for him to make a donation. But when that certificate came or the recognition came, he wanted that shown because he wanted to show that, you know what, Muslims do give. We are part of the society. We're here. And so there's a little bit of that mixed messaging as well. Uh-huh. I love the idea of giving as a communication tool as well, uh, yeah. uh, which is what recognition can be reflected into. That's a, 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 an awesome observation. And, and I talked a lot with people about the importance of having people recognize that people are giving to you so that you're a charity and that you're visible. But this direction that you've just identified uh, about making sure that people know that a particular community gives is so great to remind ourselves of. Tom? You know, Vincent, just on on this point about recognition, and I think um, perhaps just differentiating between acknowledgement and recognition, it is important for, for people to understand the importance of giving. Um, however, to, you know, whether it's naming or other forms of, of uh, public-facing recognition, uh, I think there's where some of the various comes in, in our various faith traditions. You know, for example, in the Druze tradition, in Mamanides, the, the levels of, of charity, the highest level is to do it anonymously and without personal direction or personal gain of any kind. So I, I think this is, this is one of the nuances of where we vary by faith, and yet when we come down to the the, the common denominator, it's still about caring and helping and loving people. The other thing I wanted to say in, in this topic was, I think um, we, we need to differentiate, and I think this is still a, a point of commonality across faiths, is that um, the actual ownership of the resource is not with us, even though we're the holder of it. Um, that comes from our deity, whoever that is. We, in fact, are the stewards and the managers of it. And part of the way that we can optimize and practice our faith is through giving. So, in fact, Faith is fundraising, or faith is generosity. Uh, and so when we understand that, it puts a whole new perspective on what we do, why we do, and what can be accomplished. And, and then I want to touch on that, that scarcity piece that you mentioned. And, and, and frankly, this is one of the things that just abhors me about organizations that uh, look at 
uh, a church that's succeeding or a synagogue or a mosque or other organizations that are doing great things in the community? Well, the fact of the matter is that they're doing something. Rather than resting on their laurels, feeling entitled or expecting something to happen when they're not reaching out and, and fulfilling their own mission. And so um, I don't think we live in a scarcity environment. I don't think we live in a competition environment. I think we live in an environment where there's opportunity and choice. And we make choices either to be fully in in our faith or to sit on our hands and expect it to come to us. In those cases, well, we see that the church struggles. We see that the organization struggles. In those cases where it chooses to be courageous and be out there practicing philanthropy, great things happen in community. I want to totally agree I, I, with. Oh. Go ahead, Angel. This is I'm what this is about. Say again. <laughs> I was going to say that I totally agree with what Tom said. Like, if you look at the shooting that took place in Philadelphia at the synagogue a few months ago, which was absolutely tragic and disgusting, who were the first people to step up? It was a, it was mosques, it was churches, mm-hmm. it was other synagogues showing their support. And I think what that does is that it takes it to it brings it to a different level that groups that quote unquote might not have gone in along supposedly are now working together towards a common good. And I think that's where faith-based charities play, or faith-based organizations actually play a really important role to show that, to say, you know what, no, this is wrong, and we're going to be part of that change and show how it's wrong, and we're going to support each other. And I, and I appreciate that. Thank you for that, uh, Amtul. That's a, uh, we're hearing lots of that. The interfaith uh, relationships are strong. Tom, you, well, I think you might have given us our tagline for the podcast. Uh, you know, uh, I had uh, faith in fundraising or fundraising in faith, and you just said faith is fundraising. So I think that's really uh, interesting and important to grab onto. I want to dig into the competition piece, though. That was the inter, um, the inter-organizational competitions. We're working with an organization, and the competition is not fierce or insidious or um, uh, even uh, against the cause. It's just we need to be mindful that, for example, this particular organization, I'm giving you an example so we can talk about it. Um, the organization uh, has a large Canadian uh, organization that uh, it works with. Uh, it has individual congregations that it works with, and it has an institution of higher learning that, where, where some of the funds go. So the, the, from, the, from, the, from the, the membership or I'm part of this faith perspective, there's lots of pulls. And so that's the kind of even internal competition that we need to be thoughtful of that isn't always, I mean, it's, it's obviously there in like universities and things like that. But it's not, it's an interesting case to look at in faith-based organizations that are um, fairly complex is how do you manage that inter, in, inside competition. So that's the competition I was talking about. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or I just got off on a tangent. No, you didn't. I, Vincent, it's Tom. I think you, uh, you, you touched on something really important. And, you know, again, carrying through your example, whether it's denominations who are tied to theological schools and tied to other kinds of organizations and then tied to the local church, I think there's, there's huge opportunity for them to be collaborating and communicating on the same platform because they're talking to the same donor. And if they're not doing that, then they are, in fact, competing with each other. But the competition actually creates confusion and apathy for the donor, not knowing, am I, am I really being a good steward? Who do I give to? Do I give to want to give to, to, to help the cause? So I, I think what we need to have is, is some sense of what's the supply chain? What's the symmetry that happens between these organizations that claim to be affiliated but too often act like they're competitors? 
Okay, you've just justified your existence on this podcast, Tom, <laughs> uh, because you gave me the two words I need to use with this organization that we're working supply chain and symmetry. <laughs> right. Ray or Abdul, do you have any thoughts on this, this sort of internal competition? <clears throat> I, I love something that people said about the, uh, the collegiality versus the competition. Um, th- there's another side to where I talked about joyfulness in giving, and we'll all explore that. But there's obligation as well. But I want to give you a little story first. That uh, This happened about 75 years ago, possibly even closer to 80. You were, you were like were, five or six then, weren't you? <laughs> Indeed, I was. Uh, yeah. And there there was a, uh, an influx of Muslims uh, within uh, Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, they Most of them came from Lebanon. And they had strong religious faiths and strong, um, strong Muslims. My grandfather was one of those. He came over about 110 years ago. But there was no place of worship for the Muslims. And they, as a group, they wanted to do something that would give them their own space and place for worship, which is only a reasonable uh, expectation. So what they did, they talked about it for a number of years. But it finally got to the place where they had a uh, better organized. So this is what happened to the, um, the, the genesis of what's called the Al-Rashid Mosque. The second mosque in North America, uh, the first mosque in, in all of Canada, say it's about 75 plus years ago. And what they did was, and this brings in gender as well, just because I'm going to need it a little bit, um, Traditionally, it would be the men within a Muslim uh, community that would do the uh, forward uh, march for fundraising. But they, they couldn't seem to get organized. But a women's auxiliary crew um, said, we need this for all of us, for all of our families. We're going to take the lead on this. Well, this is not very common within uh, Muslim, uh, certainly back then. But it showed how much faith was stronger uh, th- than just a, even position within a patriarchal society that they came from. Here's what they did. They had the men drive them from Alberta, Saskatchewan, possibly parts of the BC, all over the place, and they told the story of why they wanted to have the Al-Rashid Mosque built. And do you know where over half the money came from? Non-Muslim sources. A large portion came from what were in those days, we called them the Methodists. Uh, they then became the United Church. A large portion also came from Jewish communities who saw why it was important to have a place of worship as they had their synagogue. So it was an interfaith response to a need within one faith. So is there competition? Um, well, I, I suppose there might be, but more importantly, there was a collegiality. So my question is, and, and it's a horrible question, that happened back then, and, and they built this beautiful mosque. Could that happen today? Who wants to answer that question? <laughs> I think that's a great question. It's a really good question. I think in some places, yes, it would happen today. I think in some places, it wouldn't. And I think you see that again when you see masjids or you see um, synagogues or churches attacked. You do have other people come forward right away offering support and financial resources, etc. I would say the biggest competition that I've seen in terms of a fundraiser or even as 
a Muslim in a, in a mosque is between the mosques themselves. And it's not so much oh. competition. But, yeah. And it's very common. And I wouldn't say the competition is necessarily between the religions. It's a competition between ourselves internally. And that's where you start losing um, folks who are attending who get tired of this, um, the politicizing of religion and the power struggle between um, executive teams and imams, etc. And that's where we get turned away. And so that's where I've seen it, where going to the mosque has not necessarily become a thing about going for faith and growing. Sometimes it becomes a power struggle and who's in charge and how much money do they need to do what they need to do. Powerful right. Yeah, um, and I, I want to pick up on that a little bit as well, Vincent, and say that you know I have seen and worked with um, clients on occasion where, on a interfaith platform, they've chosen to address issues like homelessness or poverty or you know um, single parent families, um, saying that hey, we have a huge burgeoning need in our community, and can we set aside whatever it is our ideology or theology is in this moment and work together? And and they've done that, and so they're relevant. And I think that's really important. And it's an important reminder that just as, you know, you went into the past, Ray, that, um, you know, faith um, was at the very origin in many cases of the building of community, building of nation, building of the social infrastructures that we are educated and healed by today. Um, and yet somehow through the course of time, we've allowed ourselves in many ways to to let that be forgotten or even to let that, that social mandate, that sense of public good, that caring for the public good, get lost in the realm of how do we stay alive? How do we keep our doors open? And so, mm-hmm. so I think there's a challenge in there for us as organizations of faith, but I think there's also great hope. As we begin to reignite and see the fact that there is great public need, there's great opportunity for us to serve, and that um, organizations of faith, as Amphil said, are amongst the first in line when it comes time to crisis or urgency or disaster or whatever the issues are. That, that to us should be the hope for a future of faith, because I think as we look at millennials and the Y and Z generations, what do they care about? They care about addressing the issues of our world today. And so if the church can amplify that voice and forget about um, the greater concern about the internal politics, the internal budgeting, the internal issues that tend to put a, a drone on all of us um, and focus on serving the public, I think there's tremendous opportunity to serve. And I, and I think it'll unleash and it's a wave of generosity that the church has not seen in a long, long time. Thank you for that, Tom. I'm curious, Antil, you brought up the topic earlier about the next generation, and maybe this is a mm-hmm. time to revisit that, um, about how do they get engaged. And Tom talked about maybe some potential um, lights at the end of that tunnel. And so uh, from your perspective, is 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 that a, a possible lever with the next generation? Is this kind of, instead of, you know, what can we do for uh, the mosque and our local community, but well, how can we actually solve larger issues? Is that, the, is that the, the pivot, or is there some other things that you think might work? Well, I think one of the things that I've, I've noticed over the years is that the way that my parents gave or my friend's parents gave, very, very sort of religious focus into those charities that were Muslim-based, has changed over the years, and even with myself. And so... What I'm seeing now, I, when you had asked me to be on this podcast, I did this impromptu um, kind of survey with a group of friends who are roughly in like kind of their 30s to 50s, and I said, how do you give? And do you give based on faith? And it was a very interesting response that most of them said, no, we don't give based on faith anymore. We look at ratings. 
we look at various charitable things. We look at their overhead costs. We look at who are they supporting, and that's how we give. And if we do give to Muslim charities, like Islamic Relief of Canada or anyone like that, it's looking at, okay, who are they serving, what are they doing on the front lines, and how are their organizations run. And I think that's where we're missing a, quite a bit, especially with, um, you know, my age group or younger Muslims, is that we're not engaging them in the proper way and talking to them and actually having proper fundraising protocols in place to keep them engaged where they want to donate um, large amounts or even small amounts regularly to a faith-based organization. Right. So what I'm hearing from you is that the uh, the obligation or the, I, I don't know what the equivalent term is in, in uh, Islam, but the tithing yeah. um, aspects yeah. are, are certainly not the driving forces of the next generation. I wouldn't say it's not a driving, they're definitely still giving, right? We all right. believe that we need to give charity and we need right. to donate sure. and all that. But we're not necessarily giving to faith-based organizations. So right. when I'm doing my zakat, which is the Muslim equivalent, am I necessarily giving mm-hmm. to an Islamic Relief of Canada? Or am I giving to a Red Cross or a Vivo because I see it's going to be used better? And right. so they're still giving, but who are they giving to? That's, mm-hmm. I think, where we're losing them, at least yeah. on an Islamic And also, the, the underlying motivations were interesting, too. You, you mentioned ratings right up top. In other words, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, there's a huge thrust. I was curious to hear them. I, I don't want to. I don't want to apply it universally across all of a generation, but there is a, a a shift uh, in the in the literature, in the research, in the um, uh, the reporting, and the statistics that um, this idea around impact philanthropy. You know, uh, organizations that quote unquote are serving more people are more important than organizations who have a similar mission but aren't. Um, mm-hmm. And so that 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 effective. Philanthropy is a term that's come up. So I'm curious, uh, Tom, Ray, what are your observations? And I, the three of us, uh, uh, not counting Amtul, of course, she's very young, uh, but the three of us uh, can't really <laughs> count ourselves the, amongst the next generation. But uh, what are your observations? Well, from, from my perspective, I, 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 go ahead, Ray. Um, thank you. The, uh, while uh, made it very clear that I'm somewhere 85, north of 85 years old. Um, <laughs> I am slightly But I have three children who all are very involved in, in their in their world, um, not just the faith world, but in their communities, um, work communities, uh, social communities as well. And, and I'm seeing something different. Um, it, this might just be a bit of an alternative view. When people who have learned True philanthropy, love of humankind, and the joy of giving, as we spoke of earlier, and godly obligation, as the Jews would talk about uh, in the It's an obligation to give, not just uh, a joyfulness, but it goes beyond it. So what I see now is there's a younger generation. They're 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 a whole lot smarter than than we were. We did checkbook philanthropy. Uh, certainly, my parents did, and that was you. Wrote the check, you believed in the institution, and that they would spend it well. Um, mm-hmm. My generation was slightly different. We wanted to see more, uh, more of the rigor. And this speaks to what Tom and both Ansel are speaking of. So there was more rigor to it. I wanted to, is it going to the right place? I don't want it to go to a, 
you know, a third Cadillac and the property on strings to the pastor. I want to make sure that it's doing something. But this young generation, and I see this in my day, my two children, that they're actually rediscovering the idea of, as was mentioned earlier, impact giving. They, they give from, from the heart, from their faith, but they also want to see a change in the world. And, and so I think we're sharpening with each generation the reasons that we give. We're starting to see a resurgence in tithing. We're starting to see a resurgence among young folk. We're starting to see a resurgence of sponsorship of children in, in different countries uh, done through faith-based organizations, whether they wear it on their sleeve or not. They're still, uh, their community building still has a reason, uh, the base reason is all about faith, for sure. So, I have great great hope, great faith in this next generation that they will be. We hear so much about, oh, what are we going to do with the millennials? I hear this from CEOs of terrible organizations every single month. What do we do with the millennials? We don't think they'll give. I think they will. I think they'll step up in the same way that uh, the flower generation um, uh, of the 60s stepped up when they became a little more mature. Because it's within the heart of people to do good. And uh, those who attach themselves to a faith base, I think that's even uh, more focused. Aren't you part of the flower generation, actually, Ray? Still. <laughs> still. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, you were you were about to weigh in, and you grac- graciously gave the floor to Ray, so now's your turn. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I just want to echo what Ray said, and I, I think that uh, the coming generations um, are holding charities more accountable, not just to the efficiency of how the charity operates, but to the fulfillment of mission and vision. And so I, too, have wonderful and great hope that, you know, the millennials, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s that are practicing um, philanthropy um, are going to raise the bar. They're going to take our sector to new heights. They're going to make us even more prolific in our society that needs us to be just that. And, and so I think we have a lot to be hopeful for. Um, a couple things that I, I, I've tried as a parent and as a practitioner of giving with family uh, to emphasize two virtues, generosity and gratitude. And I think when we hold the generosity and gratitude and we do it with you know, the altruistic means in, in mind, uh, great things happen. I think we shape great characters in people. I think we accomplish many things. I think we hold to the resources that we're entrusted with a little more loosely and yet with a great intent. And I think all of these things relate to good practice in philanthropy generally, but also as it relates to people of faith. So so uh, I know it sounds like uh, I'm a bit of a cheerleader here, but I, I think there's far more um, in common than there is um, to differentiate. And, and it, it brings me to... A, a quote that I have loved and used with many clients, it comes from uh, May Angelou, we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. And when we think about organizations, we think about people, faith or secular, if we can hold to that, that simple thought, we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike, anything's possible. I love it. Love Maya. Love that you brought her into this. Thank you. Uh, so, gratitude and generosity. Um, uh, we, we could have done a, we, We've heard that on other podcasts. So great to hear it on this one. But thank you for that, Tom. I, um, we're coming close to the end of uh, our time, and I know we have tons more. I have lots more notes to talk about, but I'm wondering if I could ask, ask each of you, and I know, I know we talked about the universality and the commonality between fundraising uh, in, 
in secular organizations and in faith-based organizations. But if you were talking to a, a, a younger fundraiser or a new fundraiser uh, in your particular faith community and you wanted to give them some advice on how to be successful within your community, what would that advice be? And we'll start first with maybe you, Ray. Well, that's a, that's a powder cake question. Okay, we're moving on. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I do, I do deal with uh, younger people who uh, are involved in fundraising within their faith, and that goes across a number of faith actors. And he, here's what I would say is, don't be slick. There's, you know, there's a phrase about, um, there is no difference between secular and sacred, or there should not be a difference between secular and sacred. You shouldn't separate those two parts um, because they're one. So what right. I've been saying to to young folk is, is this: that don't be slick. <clears throat> Instead, that's a great go back to the right reasons to give. Be authentic yourself. Give yourself. That's also important. No, I know why you're giving. That's great. I love the don't be slick. It's similar to advice I've given to even CEOs and stuff. You know, people who are just new to a job and they're trying to get more polished. And, uh, and, and try to, and I, and I, I, authenticity beats polish every time in my experience. So I, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Amtul, what advice would you give? Um, so my advice around? is, yeah, sorry. My advice would be please do it. We don't have a lot of Muslim fundraisers. It's not an area that we go into. Um, there's not a lot of us when we go to conferences to even discuss. So yes, please, please, please join, um, you know, this, this fantastic world. And I would say to them, take the best you can from, from the secular side and the, the religious side and put those pieces together. And like, you know, you and both Ray said, be genuine. Love what you do. You are lucky to be in this area. Um, not many people get to experience the joys that we do as fundraisers working, um, in nonprofits or religious institutions, and I think it's fantastic. I have a, a quote that I saw yesterday that I thought was perfect, and it's from Muhammad Ali. It said, service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth, and what a better job to do than to be a fundraiser and to help, you know, service others. That's awesome, and I'm a big fan of Muhammad Ali. That's great. Me too. Me too. Thanks, thanks so much for that, Amtul. Uh, uh, Tom, uh, what's your advice to uh, to uh, an up and coming fundraiser who's working in a community of faith? Said in a different way already by Ray and Amtul. Um, our work is a privilege, not an entitlement. Um, mm-hmm. We have to honor the fact that donors have choices. We need to be clear about what it is we're asking and why we're asking people to engage, to invest, to be part of our organization. And when we do that. Again, I say, all things are possible. Well, thank you for that. Wow. I mean, uh, no surprise. Uh, fantastic conversation. Um, I do think we should uh, maybe revisit a couple of these threads when we go through um, some of our podcast topics coming up. I'd love to do, you know, phase 2.0 on this. Um, thank you all. You've been great guests. Tom, Amtul, Ray, I can't wait to have each of you back on our podcast. But before we go, I want to give each of you a chance to tell us a little bit more about, you know, uh, what you're working on, where people can reach you, uh, some other thoughts that maybe you didn't get a chance to put forward in the podcast. And I'm going to start first with you, Antoine. Anything you want our listening audience to know? Awesome. 
Well, I guess professionally, my latest project is a $60 million capital campaign for Vivo. Um, like you mentioned before, we're a leading edge recreational facility in North Calgary. So super excited to, we've already started to really get into the momentum and keep things going so that we can expand and do the great work that we're doing. We are very lucky that we, um, in our area here, we are in an area that 44% of individuals identify themselves as disabled minorities. 33% are new Canadians. And so even as an organization, we're learning how do you deal with um, donors and, and members and guests of different religions and from different cultures. And so it's, it's fantastic to have that opportunity here at Vivo to explore that area. And I would say the other thing is just, you know, raising two girls and very much what Tom said and Ray said too, you're trying to raise children who are good human beings and who learn about giving and being generous and most of all being thankful for what they have. And how do you help those others who um, necessarily don't have the same opportunities? And Muslims are a growing population. We are um, we're having children like crazy. At least some what? Muslims are not. No, not me. Um, <laughs> Is there something you want to share with us? That's cool. Yeah, I know. No, no, I'm good with the two, Vincent. I'm done. Um, okay. How do you how do you engage these new Muslims, and how do you engage new ones coming to the country in Canada and the U.S. and and um, you know, really engage them on the topic of philanthropy and giving uh, to faith-based institutions, but also just giving on the secular level too, and and us learning because not necessarily um, not everybody operates the same way um, when they're giving, and what what are they attracted to, and how do we work together on that? So I think there's some really neat opportunities coming up in the next 10, 20 years, and fundraisers who are here beyond me. Um, engaging this group of people and, and taking it forward. So thank you for this opportunity. It was fantastic. Thank you so well, much. Thanks for, thank you, Amsel. Really appreciate having you here. Ray, anything you want uh, our folks uh, who are listening to this podcast uh, to, to know, to hear, to think about? Well, this is, first of all, I, I echo uh, Amsel's uh, appreciation of being able to have this form, first of all. Thank you very much to you. Thank you very much to Israel for giving us this uh, a place to speak. I want to end with a story, and and then I'll say a little bit about what this is. And because there's Perfect. a melding between my faith uh, and, and business, as I call the Tribune. So I'll put on my yarmulke for a moment. This is a Jewish tradition story. Two women, uh, they have a beggar on the street, and, and he's in horrible shape. And both these women have exactly the same income and expenses. The first one weeps, weeps at the suffering of the beggar and opens her purse and gives him five dollars. She does this out of the goodness of her heart because she's just broken and she sees how difficult this uh, man is. Then the woman looks at the man and, and she has a bit of fear. Um, she walks by and doesn't do anything. But later in the day, she feels compelled because of religious beliefs and her compassion. She returns and gives the beggar a hundred dollars. So the question is, who's the better person for the five dollars that was done immediately to the need or the hundred that it took a little while for her conscience to get to her? And then I have a even bigger question that if you were the beggar, which one is more generous? Let me just uh, uh, use that is as that a, a, Is that a rhetorical question for the day, not going to answer <laughs> kind of thing? Is that, you're leaving that with us? 
Yeah, You're leaving well, you us know, with that discomfort of an unanswered question? Yeah. yeah. In the Jewish okay. tradition, you always answer a question with another question. Uh, Great. It's an, as you know, that we're, uh, I'm CEO of a mid-sized uh, consulting company. Uh, we call ourselves Walk Alongside Consultants. And this is where the belt of my faith and my business comes along. Uh, we discovered some years ago that uh, in the world of philanthropy, what's uh, absolutely needed is not just uh, more binders on the shelf, but what's needed is real relationship building and helping people walking alongside them for as long as it takes for them then to become be um, independent. We don't want to be there forever, but we do want to be there to walk alongside long enough, not just to give them uh, some quick solutions. So uh, our company, MCR West, does that uh, mostly in Western Canada, but we've done some work also in Eastern Canada. We get to walk alongside um, charitable organizations. What a privilege, an absolute privilege to be able to do that and meet some of the very best people, um, whether they're in the faith world or not. Um, that's what we get to do. Thank you for that, Ray. Um, I uh, I want to just share with you. I have I have spoken with and had conversations with a number of your past and current clients, and uh, they have felt extremely well served by their relationship with you. So I know you know that, but I'm just sharing that with you as an outside uh, person. And so keep up the great work, and thank you for being on the podcast, uh, Tom. You're most welcome. Tom, uh, you get to close us out. I, I left the, the, the place of honor for you. Um, uh, what, what do you want the audience to hear, remember, and take take away with today? Thanks so much, and, and what a what a wonderful time with these great people, with yourself. Um, a real privilege. A couple of things that I didn't mention, I'd love to. Um, um, the Cardis Institute, a think tank here in Canada, has undertaken a project called the Halo Project. Um, it has done an assessment and said that. Um, churches, synagogues, mosques, places of worship um, have a, an impact, an economic impact in their communities at a rate of about 4.8. So $4.80 per dollar raised goes back into communities. So already there's a huge impact that we have, and it's growing. Um, on, a, on a professional level, um, I we talked about CFRE International at the outset, and so I sit on the board. I'm involved heavily with the organization. It's one I believe in. It's the credentialing of, of us as professionals, and I just want to reach out to your audience and our, our peers to say, if you're not already a CFRE, please look at pursuing that. Talk to the international office. Talk to me. I'd be glad to explain what the value proposition is, and it's growing by the day. And then last thing, just from, from me with TTV, um, a constant reminder that I have to the clients I serve and the people I work with. Remember, our donors have choice. They have choices. They give through us as charities to help people, to create impact, outcomes, and change. Let's not forget that. Let's not feel entitled to it. Let's earn the privilege of their support, and let's do great things. Thank you, Tom. While you said the Halo Project, I went and looked it up because I can. And uh, it's a great website. We'll put it in as the show notes uh, comments, and it talks about that economic multiplier, which is awesome. And Thank you so much for your service on the CFRE board. It's It matters, it's important, and I'm glad that you're doing it. So thank you for that. Uh, with that, our gift of another Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal, has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next month when our topic will be women as donors, leaders, and volunteers in philanthropy. This will also be our first episode with a guest host. Andrea McManus will sit in for me as the host of our next episode, 
of Brain Trust Philanthropy. Joining us as guests will be Marianne Kerr, Dr. Jody Abbott, and Siobhan Doherty. Until then, enjoy the rest of the month, stay warm, and we look forward to talking with you next month. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.